Fourth section of Fundamental Principles of the Metaphysic of Morals. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Alexandre Laplante. Fundamental Principles of the Metaphysic of Morals by Immanuel Kant. Translated by Thomas Kingsmill Abbott. Fourth section. Transition from Popular Moral Philosophy to the Metaphysic of Morals, Part 3. Looking back now on all previous attempts to discover the principle of morality, we need not wonder why they all failed. It was seen that man was bound to laws by duty, but it was not observed that the laws to which he is subject are only those of his own giving, though at the same time they are universal, and that he is only bound to act in conformity with his own will. A will, however, which is designed by nature to give universal laws. For when one has conceived man only as subject to a law, no matter what, then this law required some interest, either by way of attraction or constraint, since it did not originate as a law from his own will, but this was according to a law obliged by something else to act in a certain manner. Now by this necessary consequence, all the labor spent in finding a supreme principle of duty was irrevocably lost. For men never elicited duty, but only in necessity of acting from a certain interest. Whether this interest was private or otherwise, in any case, the imperative must be conditional, and could not by any means be capable of being a moral command. I will therefore call this the principle of autonomy of the will, in contrast with every other which I accordingly reckon as heteronomy. The conception of the will of every rational being as one which must consider itself as giving in all the maxims of its will universal laws, so as to judge itself and its actions from this point of view, this conception leads to another which depends on it and is very fruitful, namely, that of a kingdom of ends. By a kingdom, I understand the union of different rational beings in a system by common laws. Now since it is by laws that ends are determined, as regards their universal validity, hence, if we abstract from the personal differences of rational beings, and likewise from all the content of their private ends, we shall be able to conceive all ends combined in a systematic whole including both rational beings as ends in themselves, and also the special ends which each may propose to himself. That is to say, we can conceive a kingdom of ends, which on the preceding principles is possible. For all rational beings come under the law that each of them must treat itself and all others never merely as means, but in every case at the same time as ends in themselves. Hence results a systematic union of rational being by common objective laws, i.e., a kingdom which may be called a kingdom of ends, since what these laws have in view is just the relation of these beings to one another as ends and means. It is certainly only an ideal. A rational being belongs as a member to the kingdom of ends when, although giving universal laws in it, he is also himself subject to these laws. He belongs to it as a sovereign when, 
while giving laws he is not subject to the will of any other a rational being must always regard himself as giving laws either as a member or as sovereign in the kingdom of ends which is rendered possible by the freedom of the will he cannot however maintain the latter position merely by the maxims of his will but only in case he is a completely independent being without wants and with unrestricted power adequate to his will morality consists then in the reference of all actions to the legislation which alone can render a kingdom of ends possible this legislation must be capable of existing in every rational being and of emanating from his will so that the principle of this will is never to act on any maxims which could not without contradiction be also a universal law and accordingly always so to act that the will could at the same time regard itself as giving in its maxims universal laws if now the maxims of rational beings are not by their own nature coincident with this objective principle then the necessity of acting on it is called practical necessitation i e duty duty does not apply to the sovereign in the kingdom of ends but it does to every member of it and to all in the same degree the practical necessity of acting on this principle i e duty does not rest at all on feelings impulses or inclinations but solely on the relation of rational beings to one another a relation in which the will of a rational being must always be regarded as legislative since otherwise it could not be conceived as an end in itself reason then refers to every maxim of the will regarding it as legislating universally to every other will and also to every action towards oneself and this not on account of any other practical motive or any future advantage but from the idea of the dignity of a rational being obeying no law but that which he himself also gives in the kingdom of ends everything has either value or dignity whatever has a value can be replaced by something else which is equivalent whatever on the other hand is above all value and therefore admits of no equivalent has a dignity whatever has reference to the general inclinations and wants of mankind has a market value whatever without presupposing a want corresponds to a certain taste that is to a satisfaction in the mere purposeless play of our faculties has a fancy value but that which constitutes the condition under which alone anything can be an end in itself this has not merely a relative worth i e value but an intrinsic worth that is dignity now morality is the condition under which alone a rational being can be an end in himself since by this alone is it possible that he should be a legislating member of the kingdom of ends thus morality and humanity as capable of it is that which alone has dignity skill and diligence in labor have a market value wit lively imagination and humor have a fancy value on the other hand fidelity to promises benevolence from principle not from instinct have an intrinsic worth neither nature nor art contains anything which in default of these it could put in their place 
for their worth consists not in the efforts which spring from them, not in the use and advantage which they secure, but in the disposition of mind, that is, the maxims of the will which are ready to manifest themselves in such actions, even though they should not have the desired effect. These actions also need no recommendation from any subjective taste or sentiment, that they may be looked on with immediate favor and satisfaction. They need no immediate propensation or feeling for them. They exhibit the will that performs them as an object of an immediate respect, and nothing but reason is required to impose them on the will, not to flatter it into them, which, in the case of duties, would be a contradiction. This estimation therefore shows that the worth of such a disposition is dignity, and places it infinitely above all value, with which it cannot for a moment be brought into comparison or competition without, as it were, violating its sanctity. What then is it which justifies virtue or the morally good disposition in making such lofty claims? It is nothing less than the privilege it secures to the rational being of participating in the giving of universal laws, by which it qualifies him to be a member of a possible kingdom of ends, a privilege to which he was already destined by his own nature as being an end in himself, and, on that account, legislating in the kingdom of ends, free as regards all laws of physical nature, and obeying those only which he himself gives, and by which his maxims can belong to a system of universal law, to which at the same time he submits himself. For nothing has any worth except what the law assigns it. Now the legislation itself which assigns the worth of everything must for that very reason possess dignity, that is, an unconditional, incomparable worth, and the word respect alone supplies a becoming expression for the esteem which a rational being must have for it. Autonomy, then, is the basis of the dignity of a human and of every rational nature. The three modes of presenting the principle of morality that have been adduced are at bottom only so many formula of the very same law, and each of itself involves the other two. There is, however, a difference in them, but it is rather subjectively than objectively practical intended namely to bring an idea of the reason nearer to intuition, by means of a certain analogy, and thereby nearer to feeling. All maxims, in fact, have, number one, a form consisting in universality, and in this view the formula of the moral imperative is expressed thus, that the maxims must be so chosen as if they were to serve as universal laws of nature. Number two, a matter, namely an end, and here the formula says that the rational being, as it is an end in its own nature, and therefore an end in itself, must in every maxim serve as the condition limiting all merely relative and arbitrary ends. Number three, a complete characterization of all maxims by means of that formula, namely, that all maxims ought by their own legislation to harmonize with a possible kingdom of ends as with a kingdom of nature. There is a progress here in the order of the categories of unity, of the form of the will, 
its universality, plurality of the matter, the object, i.e. the ends, and totality of the system of these. In forming our moral judgment of actions, it is better to proceed always on the strict method and start from the general formula of the categorical imperative. Act according to a maxim which can at the same time make itself a universal law. If, however, we wish to gain an entrance for the moral law, it is very useful to bring one and the same action under the three specified conceptions, and thereby, as far as possible, to bring it nearer to intuition. Footnote. Teleology considers nature as a kingdom of ends. Ethics regards a possible kingdom of ends as a kingdom nature. In the first case, the kingdom of ends is a theoretical idea, adopted to explain what actually is. In the latter, it is a practical idea, adopted to bring about that which is not yet, but which can be realized by our conduct, namely, if it conforms to this idea. End of footnote. We can now end where we started at the beginning, namely, with the conception of a will unconditionally good. That will is absolutely good which cannot be evil. In other words, whose maxim, if made a universal law, could never contradict itself. This principle, then, is its supreme law. Act always on such a maxim as thou canst at the same time will to be a universal law. This is the sole condition under which a will can never contradict itself, and such an imperative is categorical. Since the validity of the will as a universal law for possible actions is analogous to the universal connection of the existence of things by general laws, which is the formal notion of nature in general, the categorical imperative can also be expressed thus act on maxims which can at the same time have for their object themselves as universal laws of nature such then is the formula of an absolutely good will rational nature is distinguished from the rest of nature by this that it sets before itself an end this end would be the matter of every good will but since in the idea of a will there is absolutely good without being limited by any condition of attaining this or that end, we must abstract wholly from every end to be effected, since this would make every will only relatively good. It follows that in this case the end must be conceived not as an end to be effected, but as an independently existing end. Consequently, it is conceived only negatively, i.e., as that which we must never act against, and which, therefore, must never be regarded merely as means, but must in every volition be esteemed as an end likewise. Now this end can be nothing but the subject of all possible ends, since this is also the subject of a possible absolutely good will. For such a will cannot without contradiction be postponed to any other object. The principle, so act in regard to every rational being, thyself and others, that he may always have place in thy maxim as an end in himself, is accordingly essentially identical with this other. Act upon a maxim which at the same time involves its own universal validity for every rational being.
for that in using means for every end i should limit my maxim by the condition of its holding good as a law for every subject this comes to the same thing as that the fundamental principle of all maxims of action must be that the subject of all ends i e the rational being himself be never employed merely as means but as the supreme condition restricting the use of all means that is in every case as an end likewise it follows incontestably that to whatever laws any rational being may be subject he being an end in himself must be able to regard himself as also legislating universally in respect of these laws since it is just this fitness of his maxims for universal legislation that distinguishes him as an end in himself also it follows that this implies his dignity prerogative above all mere physical beings that he must always take his maxims from the point of view which regards himself and likewise every other rational being as law-giving beings on which account they are called persons in this way a world of rational beings mundus intelligibilis is possible as a kingdom of ends and this by virtue of the legislation proper to all persons as members therefore every rational being must so act as if he were by his maxims in every case a legislating member in the universal kingdom of ends the formal principle of these maxims is so act as if thy maxim were to serve likewise as the universal law of all rational beings a kingdom of ends is thus only possible on the analogy of a kingdom of nature the former however only by maxims that is self-imposed rules the latter only by the laws of efficient causes acting under necessitation from without nevertheless although the system of nature is looked upon as a machine yet so far as it has reference to rational beings as its ends it is given on this account the name of a kingdom of nature now such a kingdom of ends would be actually realized by means of maxims conforming to the canon which the categorical imperative prescribes to all rational beings if they were universally followed but although a rational being even if he punctually follows this maxim himself cannot reckon upon all others being therefore true to the same nor expect that the kingdom of nature and its orderly arrangements shall be in harmony with him as a fitting member so as to form a kingdom of ends to which he himself contributes that is to say that it shall favor his expectation of happiness still that law act according to the maxims of a member of a merely possible kingdom of ends legislating in it universally remains in its full force inasmuch as it commands categorically and it is just in this that the paradox lies that the mere dignity of a man as a rational creature without any other end or advantage to be attained thereby in other words respect for a mere idea should yet serve as an inflexible precept of the will and that it is precisely in this independence of the maxim on all such springs of action that its sublimity consists and it is this that makes every rational subject worthy to be a legislative member in the kingdom of ends for otherwise he would have to be conceived only as subject to the physical law of his wants and although we should suppose the kingdom of nature and the kingdom of ends 
to be united under one sovereign, so that the latter kingdom thereby ceased to be a mere idea and acquired true reality, then it would no doubt gain the accession of a strong spring, but by no means any increase in its intrinsic worth. For this sole absolute lawgiver must, notwithstanding this, be always conceived as estimating the worth of rational beings only by their disinterested behavior, as prescribed to themselves from that idea, the dignity of man, alone. The essence of things is not altered by their external relations, and that which, abstracting from these, alone constitutes the absolute worth of a man, is also that by which he must be judged, whoever the judge may be, and even by the supreme being. Morality, then, is the relation of actions to the relation of actions will, that is, to the autonomy of potential universal legislation by its maxims. An action that is consistent with the autonomy of the will is permitted, one that does not agree therewith is forbidden. A will whose maxims necessarily coincide with the laws of autonomy is a holy will, good absolutely. The dependence of a will not absolutely good on the principle of autonomy, moral necessitation, is obligation. This, then, cannot be applied to a holy being. The objective necessity of actions from obligation is called duty. From what has just been said, it is easy to see how it happens that, although the conception of duty implies subjection to the law, we yet ascribe a certain dignity and sublimity to the person who fulfills all his duties. There is not, indeed, any sublimity in him so far as he is subject to the moral law, but inasmuch as in regard to that very law he is likewise a legislator, and on that account alone subject to it, he has sublimity. We have also shown above that neither fear nor inclination, but simply respect for the law, is the spring which can give actions a moral worth. Our own will, so far as we suppose it to act only under the condition that its maxims are potentially universal laws, this ideal will, which is possible to us, is the proper object of respect, and the dignity of humanity consists just in this capacity of being universally legislative, though with the condition that it is itself subject to this same legislation. The Autonomy of the Will as the Supreme Principle of Morality Autonomy of the will is that property of it by which it is a law to itself, independently of any property of the objects of volition. The principle of autonomy then is, always so to choose that the same volition shall comprehend the maxims of our choice as a universal law. We cannot prove that this practical rule is an imperative, i.e., that the will of every rational being is necessarily bound to it as a condition, by a mere analysis of the conceptions which occur in it, since it is a synthetical proposition. We must advance beyond the cognition of the objects to a critical examination of the subject, that is, of the pure practical reason, for this synthetic proposition which commands apodictically must be capable of being cognized wholly a priori. This matter, however, does not belong to the present section. But that the principle of autonomy in question is the sole principle of morals can be readily shown 
by a mere analysis of the conceptions of morality. For this analysis, we find that its principle must be a categorical imperative, and that what this commands is neither more nor less than this very autonomy. Heteronomy of the will as the source of all spurious principles of morality. If the will seeks the law which is to determine it anywhere else than in the fitness of its maxims to be universal laws of its own dictation, consequently, if it goes out of itself and seeks this law in the character of any of its objects, there always results heteronomy. The will in that case does not give itself the law, but it is given by the object through its relation to the will. This relation, whether it rests on inclination or on conceptions of reason, only admits of hypothetical imperatives. I ought to do something because I wish for something else. On the contrary, the moral, and therefore categorical imperative, says, I ought to do so-and-so, even though I should not wish for anything else, e.g., the former says, I ought not to lie if I would retain my reputation. The latter says, I ought not to lie, although it should not bring me the least discredit. The latter, therefore, must so far abstract from all objects that they shall have no influence on the will, in order that practical reason, will, may not be restricted to administrating an interest not belonging to it, but may simply show its own commanding authority as the supreme legislation. Thus, e.g., I ought to endeavor to promote the happiness of others, not as if its realization involved any concern of mine, whether by immediate inclination or by any satisfaction indirectly gained through reason, but simply because a maxim which excludes it cannot be comprehended as a universal law in one and the same volition classification of all principles of morality which can be founded on the conception of heteronomy here as elsewhere human reason in its pure use so long as it was not critically examined has first tried all possible wrong ways before it succeeded in finding the one true way all principles which can be taken from this point of view are either empirical or rational the former drawn from the principle of happiness, are built on physical or moral feelings. The latter, drawn from the principle of perfection, are built either on the rational conception of perfection as a possible effect, or on that of an independent perfection, the will of God, as the determining cause of our will. Empirical principles are wholly incapable of serving as a foundation for moral laws. For the universality for which these should hold for all rational beings without distinction, the unconditional practical necessity which is thereby imposed on them, is lost when their foundation is taken from the particular constitution of human nature, or the accidental circumstances in which one is placed. The principle of private happiness, however, is the most objectionable, not merely because it is false, and experience contradicts the supposition that prosperity is always proportioned to good conduct, nor yet merely because it contributes nothing to the establishment of morality, since it is quite a different thing to make a prosperous man and a good man, or to make one prudent and sharp-sighted for his own interests and to make him virtuous, but because the springs it provides for morality 
are such as rather undermine it and destroy its sublimity, since they put the motives to virtue and to vice in the same class, and only teach us to make a better calculation, the specific difference between virtue and vice being entirely extinguished. On the other hand, as to moral feeling, this supposed special sense, the appeal to it is indeed superficial when those who cannot think believe that feeling will help them out, even in what concerns general laws, and besides, feelings, which naturally differ infinitely in degree, cannot furnish a uniform standard of good and evil, nor has any one a right to form judgments for others by his own feelings. Nevertheless, this moral feeling is nearer to morality and its dignity in this respect that it pays virtue the honor of ascribing to her immediately the satisfaction and esteem we have for her and does not as it were tell her to her face that we are not attached to her by her beauty but by profit footnote i class the principle of moral feeling under that of happiness because every empirical interest promises to contribute to our well-being by the agreeableness that a thing affords whether it be immediately and without a view to profit, or whether profit be regarded. We must likewise, with Hutcheson, class the principle of sympathy with the happiness of others under his assumed moral sense. End of footnote. Amongst the rational principles of morality, the ontological conception of perfection, notwithstanding its defects, is better than the theological conception which derives morality from a divine absolutely perfect will the former is no doubt empty and indefinite and consequently useless for finding in the boundless field of possible reality the greatest amount suitable for us moreover in attempting to distinguish specifically the reality of which we are now speaking from every other it inevitably tends to turn in a circle and cannot avoid tacitly presupposing the morality which it is to explain it is nevertheless preferable to the theological view first because we have no intuition of the divine perfection and can only deduce it from our own conceptions the most important of which is that of morality and our explanation would thus be involved in a gross circle and in the next place if we avoid this the only notion of the divine will remaining to us is a conception made up of the attributes of desire, of glory, and domination, combined with the awful conceptions of might and vengeance, and any system of morals erected on this foundation would be directly opposed to morality. However, if I had to choose between the notion of the moral sense and that of a perfection in general, two systems which at least do not weaken morality, although they are totally incapable of serving as its foundation, then I should decide for the latter, because it at least withdraws the decision of the question from the sensibility and brings it to the court of pure reason, and although even here it decides nothing, it at all events preserves the indefinite idea of a will good in itself free from corruption until it shall be more precisely defined. For the rest, I think I may be excused here from a detailed refutation of all these doctrines. That would only be superfluous labor, since it is so easy and is probably so well seen even by those whose office requires them to decide for one of these theories, because their hearers would not tolerate suspension of judgment. But what interests us more here 
is to know what the prime foundation of morality laid down by all these principles is nothing but heteronomy of the will, and for this reason they must necessarily miss their aim. In every case where an object of the will has to be supposed, in order that the rule may be prescribed which is to determine the will, there the rule is simply heteronomy. The imperative is conditional, namely, if or because one wishes for this object, one should act so-and-so. Hence it can never command morality, that is, categorically. Whether the object determines the will by means of inclination, as in the principle of private happiness, or by means of reason directed to objects of our possible volition generally, as in the principle of perfection, in either case the will never determines itself immediately by the conception of the action, but only by the influence which the foreseen effect of the action has on the will. I ought to do something, on this account, because I wish for something else, and here there must be yet another law assumed in me, as its subject, by which I necessarily will this other thing, and this law again requires an imperative to restrict this maxim. For the influence which the conception of an object within the reach of our faculties can exercise on the will of the subject, in consequence of its natural properties, depends on the nature of the subject, either the sensibility, inclination and taste, or the understanding and reason, the employment of which is by the peculiar constitution of their nature attended with satisfaction. It follows that the law would be, properly speaking, given by nature, and, as such, it must be known and proved by experience, and would consequently be contingent, and therefore incapable of being an apodeictic practical rule, such as the moral rule must be. Not only so, but it is inevitably only heteronomy, the will does not give itself the law, but is given by a foreign impulse by means of a particular natural constitution of the subject adapted to receive it. An absolutely good will, then, the principle of which must be a categorical imperative, will be indeterminate as regards all objects, and will contain merely the forms of volition generally, and that as autonomy, that is to say, the capability of maxims and every good will to make themselves a universal law, is itself the only law which the will of every rational being imposes on itself, without needing to assume any spring or interest as a foundation. How such a synthetical practical a priori proposition is possible, and why it is necessary, is a problem whose solution does not lie within the bounds of the metaphysic of morals, and we have not here affirmed its truth, much less professed to have a proof of it in our power. We simply showed by the development of the universally received notion of morality that an autonomy of the will is inevitably connected with it, or rather, is its foundation. Whoever then holds morality to be anything real, and not a chimerical idea without any truth, must likewise admit the principle of it that is here assigned. This section, then, like the first, was merely analytical. Now to prove that morality is no creation of the brain, which it cannot be if the categorical imperative, and with it the autonomy of the will, is true, 
and as an a priori principle absolutely necessary. This supposes the possibility of a synthetic use of practical reason, which, however, we cannot venture on without first giving a critical examination of this faculty of reason. In the concluding section, we shall give the principal outlines of this critical examination as far as it is sufficient for our purpose. End of section 4. Transition from Popular Moral Philosophy to the Metaphysic of Morals, Part 3. Recording by Alexandre Laplante.